0: this is the shameless mom academy episode 334 with sarah stewart holland beth silvers show notes for this episode including any links mentioned in the episode as well as any discount codes from our sponsors can be found by going to shamelessmom.com and clicking on episode 334 oh mamas i have a special treat for you today so i recently had the opportunity to sit down with sarah stewart holland And Beth Silvers, and they are the hosts of the podcast Pantsuit Politics. And they have very differing political views, yet, they find a lot of ways to connect on many of the same topics. So Sarah is on the left side of all things politics. Beth is on the right side of all things politics. And they have these amazing, powerful, impactful conversations around all the commonalities and how they really are deeply connected and grounded in a lot of the same values, even though they're on opposite sides of so many political issues. So I think this is going to be really, really fascinating. Let me tell you a little bit about each of them independently, and then I'll let you know what we talk about today. So Sarah Stewart Holland from the left has always loved politics, although her political opinions have changed drastically over the years. She worked in politics and on Capitol Hill before moving back to her hometown of Paducah, Kentucky, where she served on the Paducah City Commission. She is happily married and the mother of three sons. Sarah likes her bourbon on ice, her romantic dramas with a British accent, and her iPhone fully charged. Beth Silvers, from the right, owns and operates Checking In with Beth Silvers, a life and business coaching practice. She has been recognized as one of Ohio's most powerful and influential women by the Ohio Diversity Council, a human resources game changer by Workforce Magazine, and one of Cincinnati's 40 Under 40 business leaders. Beth lives in Union with her husband Chad, daughters Jane and Ellen, and miniature Schnauzer Lucy. She loves people, politics, poetry, and watermelon. So, listening to hear Beth and Sarah share the typically strongest values on the left versus the right, how your family of origin impacts your politics, the power of observing versus judging, the value of getting curious instead of confrontational the power of acknowledging and addressing shared concerns and shared values, why people of privilege need to have the uncomfortable conversations, how to navigate difficult conversations with grace, and why it's important for moms to be politically engaged. I loved this conversation. I had so many aha moments and things I needed to hear. And I think you're going to have some of the same. I feel like we're at a time where we are all faced with some challenges around politics right now and how we want to navigate that. And this just really, really opened my mind and my heart around ways I can be doing better. So I hope that you love this conversation as much as I did. With all that said, I'm so excited and honored to introduce you to Sarah and Beth. Beth Silvers and Sarah Stewart-Holland, welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm so excited to have you both here today. Thank you. We're so
1: excited to be here. Thank you.
0: This is going to be fun. I've only done a few interviews with two people and I feel like the energy, it's kind of magical and it can be kind of fast paced. So I hope everyone's ready to like put on your seatbelts because here we go. (laughs) So I want to hear from you two about the dynamics of your personal and professional lives beyond your bio and what you're most excited about right now. So because there's two of you, let's give you each a little moment in the spotlight. Let's go ahead and start with
2: Sarah on this one. What I'm most excited about right now? That's a very difficult question for me to answer because I'm very excitable. <laughs> me Beth too, says I, I, bring like the, I Beth always says I bring the zeal of the converted to bait. I mean, everything. We're talking politics to like my new favorite mascara. I'm all in on all. Oh my, my gosh, things. that's amazing. That's so funny. Are you super extrovert? Yes. Okay, <laughs> me too. So <laughs> I can relate. I love um, it. But, but I would say right now, I don't know if, Excited is the right word to use for Lent, but I really like this season of year where it's sort of winter is still going. We're kind of tired of it. We're in this transitional phase to spring. We're all doing a little self-reflection and carefully considering our habits, or at least that's what I use this time of year for. Mm. I love that pause. I love that deliberate pause and that consideration and sort of the spiritual aspects of thinking about hard things and transitions and I'm all in on this time of year.
0: Nice. I love it. Beth, go ahead and fill us in on your side. What dynamics do you want to share of your personal professional life and what are you most excited about right now?
1: Well, I Sarah likes to say we're complimentary. And so I am very much an introvert. I'm not very excitable. I love the work that we get to do together. And I love Sarah's enthusiasm rubbing off on me now and then. Mm -hmm. I just had this really fun conversation with my eight-year-old where we were talking about what DNA is. And she said, do you have DNA that is in you, but doesn't seem like it's in you? And I said, well, I'm sure that there are things in me that I've passed on to you that you don't really see in me. And she goes, like enthusiasm. (laughs) That's (laughs) so true. So, so I am excited right now. (laughs) I'm excited right now about rediscovering fiction. I took a long hiatus from reading fiction.
0: That's a fun one. That's a good one. A lot of that
1: is because my personality. I do a lot of research for our shows, I do a lot of reading in my business life. And so, just diving back into fiction after. Really, not reading much fiction since college has been a beautiful thing. I'm all into this is how it always is right now. And it's just wonderful. And I feel like it's reactivating a part of my brain that's been asleep for a while.
0: Oh, that's such a great point about how it impacts your brain. Because, yes, I think that's just, I think, common among moms that we don't take time to read fiction. So that's a great point. I love it. Okay. I want to know a little bit of background about the two of you. So, It's Sarah from the left, Beth from the right. You have your podcast, Pantsuit Politics, where you come from different perspectives, but join as a united front, right? So tell us a little bit about how this all started. And it's been huge. The show's been downloaded over 4 million times, which, wow, that's amazing. So talk a little bit about the journey and what even inspired you two to get started together. And Beth, do you want to go ahead and kick us off?
1: Sure. Sarah and I went to college together. We were sorority sisters, but we went on very different journeys post college. I stayed in Kentucky for law school. Sarah went to Washington, D.C. for law school. Her intention was not to practice, but to be involved in politics immediately, and mine was always to practice. Mm -hmm. And so we did our separate careers. Sarah brought her family back to Paducah, Kentucky from Washington, D.C. when she was ready to have kids and started blogging. And that's really how I found Sarah. We reconnected on Facebook, and I was really interested in her stories about natural childbirth. She had a child a few years before I had my first, and I was reading about her experiences with natural childbirth. And I thought, I would like to know more about this, especially from someone who I at least sort of know. And that's how we started to get in touch again. And then I'll let Sarah pick it up from here because she is our designated origin storyteller. And I feel like oh. this part of the story is better from her. Take
2: it away, Sarah. So I was writing a parenting blog and I would often sort of blow it up with political posts. I mean, I would literally write a post that was like, this is my favorite stroller. And then the next one would be, uh, these are my feelings on abortion. Like, I just had no feelings. I <laughs> oh was God, all This in is so me. It. I just I, didn't care. It's my blog. That's the right. So Beth was on maternity leave, and she said, hey, I noticed you write some political posts. Would you ever be interested in a guest post, like sort of from the opposing viewpoint? And I'm like, absolutely, because that means I don't have to write it. So <laughs> she wrote a couple really great pieces, one in particular that really resonated with my audience called Nuance, in which she – we had a lot of really intense social media controversies in 2015 that like Cecil the lion. And remember that because, man, what I wouldn't give for Cecil the lion these days.
1: Wait, refresh our memories about Cecil the Cecil lion. Cecil
2: the lion. It was like, I don't remember who killed him. He was oh, like it
1: was a dentist from Milwaukee or something. Oh, a dentist. yes, yes, like a yes. A big game
2: hunter. And okay. He killed
1: this lion
2: on a wildlife reserve. That like And then he took a picture and he took a big picture with it, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And people lost it. Because we thought that was as bad as things could get exactly. in 2015. We were darling is what we, <laughs> right, wanted. we were just right. darling. And Beth wrote this piece that was basically like, hey, we don't have to be all in or all out on every single issue. What if we just hashtagged our social media post? This is my opinion, but hashtag nuance. I understand if you're saying things differently. And I thought, okay, this is good because I had wanted to start a podcast for a long time. I'd done. I thought I was going to do an interview show with women in politics because I had a hunch Hillary would be running. And I did one, but the truth is I don't love doing interviews. I like giving answers, not asking questions, if I'm just being really honest with my personality. <laughs> and so I had been thinking about this because my husband had been like, all in, you got to get a, start a podcast, you got to start a podcast. So when she posted that, I thought, hey. So I reached out and I said, hey, would you be interested in doing a like bipartisan political podcast with me? And she said, what's a podcast? And I'm like, don't worry. We got that part under control. We'll work it out and post. And so... My husband was like, well, I'll produce it. You guys can do phone calls. So I thought, okay, let's do a practice phone call. Let's just see how it goes. So I called her. I remember where I was driving and everything. And we talked about Kentucky politics, probably for about 45 minutes for an hour. And then I said, okay, we're not gonna talk on the phone anymore unless we're recording it. Because it was very clear from the beginning that we had a really good conversation flow, that we had a lot of really good chemistry. Beth has internal patience for being interrupted, which is helpful if you're gonna be in (laughs) constant conversation with me. So we recorded an episode and thought, surely, you know, just our friends and family will listen for a while. And then we got picked up pretty quickly by iTunes Noteworthy, which in 2015 was like it. That's how you got your podcast off the ground. Yep. And they featured us and tweeted about us. And then all of a sudden we had several thousand listeners that we didn't quite know what to do with in the beginning. And it just continued to grow and grow from there.
0: Understood Explains, and it will pop right up. Click on it, pick your episode, and get the answers that you've been looking for and the support that you need around different learning differences and differences in school. This episode is supported by Mysteries About True Histories, a podcast for your kiddos. So from the creators of the hit podcast, Who Smarted, and Netflix's Brainchild, comes the adventurous world of mysteries about true histories, affectionately known as math. Every episode follows Max and Molly who have just been recruited into a secret order of problem solvers on an adventure through time packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history and laughs, making learning cool. This podcast is perfect for ages six and up and new episodes drop every Thursday, each stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. I love a show where as a parent, you're like, hey, let's listen or watch this or whatever. And your kids are thinking they're like getting extra device time or what have you. And you're like, they're learning right now. So it feels like such a big win. So I want you to go check out Mysteries About True Histories wherever you listen to podcasts. You can tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you're listening to this podcast. So go check out Mysteries About True Histories to listen in and have some fun with your kid while they learn today. That's so awesome. You knew from the get-go it would be political-based and sharing two perspectives. Yes, definitely. Okay. Okay. And I'm curious, did either of you, were there boundaries around like, we're going to fight it out or we're going to have like conscientious conversations or what was your perspective on that going into it? And Beth, I don't know if you want to hop in here
1: we wanted to have conversations that you have when you care about the other person, but have different views. And we just couldn't find that anywhere because everything is designed to be sort of a battle to the death at minimum. And I mean, sometimes a true debate, but we didn't really want to have that either because what good is doing high school debate team constantly, you know, that doesn't move us forward as a society. So we kind of talked about maybe we're going to be like, a kind version of crossfire mm-hmm. but once we got into it we really started to see that the most productive conversations are those where you step back from policy to say what are our values here yeah and then move from your values into your policy so when we talked early on about abortion you know we didn't go right to Well, what about this bill that's pending? We talked about like, what kind of conversations about sex do we have in this country? Why do we have so many unwanted pregnancies? You know, where do we really want to be on this? What kinds of things do we want to put our energy into? And we just felt like our conversations were so much more interesting and provided fertile ground for further exploration and even good policy that we both could support. That doesn't always happen, but it happens often because we go way back to where are we coming from here?
0: I love that. I'm like already thinking through people in my family who I avoid conversations with because I just assume it's going to blow up. And I think that's such a great tip to bring it back to values and assume that the other person's coming from, I mean, when we talk about values, like you're coming from something pretty heart centered, which probably sounds like a super left way to talk about (laughs) anything based around decisions. But when you come back to that place of values, it makes everything way more human feeling versus like you said, versus, you know, talking about bills and reform and those kinds of things. I think that piece is important.
1: Yeah, I hope it's not heart centered to be left. I mean, I hope that the heart center isn't just the left leaning thing. I mean, maybe we would use different words for it on the right. Yeah. And tell me more about that
0: because I actually have a follow up comment. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of people on the right side of the spectrum are there for reasons that attach to what they would call their values. And sometimes that's a matter of religious conviction. Sometimes it's, you know, for me, my right-leaning tendencies come more from growing up in a very rural area and seeing the impact of regulation at the federal level on my family's farm. And Mm so once you kind of get to those stories, why do I begin where I begin? There's so much to be fascinated about in the person across the table from you.
0: I love that. And I really appreciate that distinction because I would not want to infer that people who are on the right side are not heart-centered in their values. The reason I said that, and I'm curious if anyone else, if either of you can relate to this, or I'm sure some listeners can, but the right-leaning members of my family like to jab left-leaning members by saying we're all bleeding heart liberals. And so I always have had this like sensitivity around that, that like you know, I lead with my heart and that has not been always pointed out to me in the most positive light. And so that's, I think the connection for me with that. So I really appreciate the way you reframe that because I think you're absolutely right. And I really love that you point out where your political viewpoints really stem from in terms of your background and your family. And Sarah, could you share a little bit about similarly for you, where would you say like the base of your politics came from if you go back in your family?
2: Well, I always loved talking politics. I was an intensely political child, which is a weird thing to be, especially if you're a girl, <laughs> yeah, and that's um, not I had a lot of really supportive, nurturing men in my life. My grandfather would have long conversations with me about JFK and FDR and the working man. Now, he has since passed away. I have absolutely no doubt if he was still alive, he would be a Trump supporter. My father is a Trump supporter. So I grew up having these conversations. I started more conservative because I was raised evangelical Christian. And then when I went away to school at the art college, Transylvania University, which is a small liberal arts college, I was a political science major and just became increasingly more left-leaning and progressive, same as through law school and in my experience on Capitol Hill. So I would say as a person who still has family members on the other side of the aisle, that one of the things that really really helped me. And it was a gift from our listeners, because I don't really know how this book came onto our radar, but it became one of our picks for one of our very first book clubs. And it's a book by Jonathan Haidt called The Righteous Mind. Mm. And it's an unbelievably wonderful book. And he talks in detail about how each side is animated by different moral principles. And on the left, you do often see more animation around care and around fairness. Those are two values that are of the utmost importance to someone who would describe themselves as left-leaning. Then he goes on to talk about other really important values that you would see more likely on the right side of the aisle, such as respect for authority, loyalty to the group. And he does such a good job going through and talking about why we need people with both sets of values. It is essential, especially in a democracy, that we are not only motivated by care and fairness. It sounds like so good, right? Especially if you're a progressive, you're like, wow, what's wrong with just care and fairness? Right. I but know. I that don't seems understand. like money. <laughs> um, But he does a really good job, as somebody who was super left leaning and then went and studied in some very conservative cultures. I think you lived in India for a while. But he does a really good job of articulating no, this is important. It is very important to have different perspectives at the table because you miss things. Because we are a nation and part of being a nation is some loyalty to the group and not just saying we're going to care for everybody all over the world at the cost of our own group, basically. So it's way more complex than that. I highly recommend everybody read the book. But when I could orient myself in the debate and say, You know, it's discernment. It's not judgment. It's not deciding one thing is better than the other. It's just observing the differences. And when I can walk into a conversation and say, okay, I'm just going to observe and be curious about our differences and the different way we see the world and not ascribe moral value, which I love to do, to everything, to say there absolutely is a right and a wrong and a black and a white. Because I like to think of myself as a nuanced person who sees the world in gray, but it is so easy to default to that black and white approach. Yeah. And so when I can say, okay, well, I know that they're being animated by these values that aren't necessarily of the utmost importance to me, but isn't our group stronger when we have this diversity of perspective and you have people looking at things from different avenues? Yeah, that's so interesting. And
0: I love your choice of words around observing versus judging. And I think that that's where things get really sticky because I think that observation piece is often just like skipped right over real quickly. (laughs) And the idea of getting curious. I mean, I even talk about this just in the context of like, you know, arguments in marriage with friends completely outside of politics. Just whenever you find yourself going to that place of judging and getting super defensive, instead of you can get curious, the route the conversation takes is so different.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think part of this is we live in a consumer culture. And consumerism is driven by making a judgment call and deciding if something's worth it or not, right? I mean, that is the driving force. And so often we bring that consumer mindset to politics and even to our relationships with each other. You know, we have to make a call. This politician is worth it or it's human garbage. Like, we're not buying them. They're yeah. human beings. And so I think that, that that drive to judge, make a call, consume, discard is really strong. And you have to watch it, I think, in ourselves at all times.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What have been the biggest lessons that you've learned in having these kinds of conversations with each other? I should have asked this at the beginning. Started the show in 2015, you said?
1: Yes. November, 2015.
0: Okay. So you're like three and a half years into the show. So are you at about close to 200 episodes?
1: We are a lot more than that because we have done two episodes a week. Oh my gosh. Most of that time. Yeah. Okay.
0: Wow. Okay. So, I mean, you have had a few conversations.
1: (laughs) um, I always tell people there are thousands of hours of our voices in your phone, if you would like to hear from (laughs) (laughs) us.
0: So what have been the biggest lessons that you've learned? And I don't know how easy it is for you to pare it down after so many conversations, but what have been some of the big like ahas and takeaways that each of you have experienced over all of these conversations? And Beth, if you want to go ahead and start.
1: I think for me, it is the value, just what Sarah was talking about, the value in the other perspective. And whenever you have this conversation about civility or bipartisanship, people automatically go to compromise. And I think a big thing I've learned from having thousands of hours of conversations with Sarah is sometimes compromise is not available or desirable, Sometimes we really have to give way to the other person's perspective. So we talk a lot, especially on college campuses with students about when it comes to the government, the federal government in particular, Sarah is the gas. She says, we've got a great big problem here. We've got the great big tools of the federal government. Let's put our foot on the accelerator and solve it. And I'm the brakes saying, wait a second, if we do that, here are all the unintended consequences that could play out. And here are the risks of using this very powerful tool for this problem. And then we're the reverse in the private sector. I see a problem and I think, let's let industry go and solve this and be, you know, malleable and adaptive. And Sarah says, hang on, pump the brakes. Look what has happened when Facebook and Uber and all kinds of industry has taken the lead without anybody saying, here are the risks, you know? And so we need both of those and you can't press both of those at the same time. You do have to give way to each other to achieve a balance, but ultimately you both belong in the car. And that's really what I've seen through our conversations, the benefit of these two perspectives when they are willing to give way to one another and go back and forth and sort of calibrate in both arenas. I think we could have really good governance if we would stop acting like it's you win, I lose and see it more as this really cooperative symbiotic relationship.
2: I like that. Sarah, what about you? I think the biggest thing I've observed and really come to Jesus with, as we say in the South is The higher the stakes are in the conversation or in the debate, the less willing people are to see the other side as human, Mm. as caring, as invested, as really someone they want to be involved with at all. And because of the nature of social media and the nature of our new media environment, and for a lot of reasons, including some of the policy debates we keep having over and over again, we have raised the stakes on each other so high that we can't take a breath and say, wait, we're still Americans. We're still in this together. Where do we go next? Because the other side is the enemy. The other side is out to destroy the country. The other side is driven by Lord knows what terrible fill in the blank you want to put in there.
0: Right.
2: And if we cannot de-escalate, if we cannot remind ourselves and sort of put politics in its place that history is long, and, you know, gain a wider perspective so that we can begin to give each other the benefit of the doubt just a little and lower the stakes in these conversations and in these debates, it's going to be really difficult to move forward. We have to give ourselves some breathing room, and sometimes the best place to do that is with people we love already and people we're already in relationship with. We always say, like, don't take our book up to a stranger. That's not what we're advocating that you do, but hopefully if we can start to do this work and, Exhale a little bit and just allow a little bit of room to get curious with each other in these relationships that are already important to us, where we can prioritize that person in a real way and not see them as the enemy, then maybe we can do that in bigger contexts eventually. Yeah, I
0: like that and I agree. I think that makes a ton of sense. Again, after all of these conversations, what are some of the surprising similarities that people wouldn't assume? I think that it's so easy because, as you've referenced, things are already at a very heightened state when we start engaging in conversations around politics already just because of current state of the media. And so I think we make a lot of assumptions around how difficult conversations are going to be and we're very prepared to be defensive and we want to be also be prepared to be right. And so when we back off of all of that and we can take some ego out of it and take our defenses out of it, what are some of the surprising similarities that you two have found that Exist between you in spite of being on different sides of the political spectrum?
1: I think very often we agree about what challenges exist in the United States and the depth and breadth of those challenges. Mm. Something that I am critical of in the Republican party. Often I'm critical of lots of things about the Republican party, especially here in the Trump era. But one thing that I'm especially critical of, and this has been going on long before Donald Trump is that sometimes when we don't want the federal government to be the problem solver, we deny the problem exists. And I think that is a very disconnecting approach. So when Sarah and I sit down to talk about Healthcare, it's very important to me to say, Hey, I agree that our healthcare system is not working for everyone. It's not working well for almost anyone. Mm -hmm. And I agree that we want quality, affordable care for everyone. I agree that we don't want people to die because they don't have access to good doctors. And when we say, like, we agree on the problem and we agree on the goal, then it's easier to have a very reasonable conversation about what tools do you bring to try to solve that problem. I think that's a conversation people don't hear very often. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's a really great point. That idea of starting with what you agree with rather than starting right from the place of where you don't agree. Sarah, did you want to add
2: anything to that? I mean, I just think so often about our origin story and I used to tell it all the time and I would not, it's almost as if I'd forgotten that where we really started was the shared interest and exploration of natural birth. Mm. And I think I've added it back into the story very deliberately because I think it's so important. If Beth and I had said, let's sit down and have a conversation about Obamacare, even in 2015, it would have been a very contentious conversation because we feel very differently about the future of particularly government health care in the, in the country. And I think so. And we had one of those conversations pretty early in the podcast. And that conversation inevitably drew back to both of our shared issues with maternity care in the country. Mm. So we don't really necessarily agree on just what she said, the future and where we want to go, but we can definitely agree on some of the problems and what that conversation did when we said, Hey, we have a lot of trouble with the maternity care in this country. What does that illustrate? When you get to those shared problems or shared concerns, it's such a good way to dig into where your shared values are. Because once we said we both have problems with maternity care, well, what are they? Well, we feel like there's no empowerment of the mother. The mother is very low on the list of priorities. We also feel like there is a lack of choice and a lack of options presented to the patient. And so then we could really say, okay, well, that means what is very important to us in healthcare is the empowerment of the patient, is a presentation of real discernible choices and so then we could really start piecing apart where our values show up together and even say hey okay well and I think we did have this conversation where I said when I see choice for the patient you know my problem with our current health insurance is who cares how much choice you have if you can't pay for it and so I was able to articulate in a way that wasn't just you don't care if people die ridiculousness right right. where my concerns were coming from and She was able to articulate, yeah, well, I really care about choice and I'm concerned about how choice will be limited if the federal government is in control. Mm -hmm. So we could really get to these, okay, well, I have this value. Here's how this value surfaces in my solution. Here's how this value surfaces in my solution and go from there as opposed to walking into a conversation, refusing to give the other person a millimeter of benefit of the doubt and pretending as if no one cares about the future or has any shared values And so it's just such a different path to take, yeah. And it can be so much more productive.
1: Not to get too in the weeds on healthcare on your show, Sarah, but go for it. (laughs) That did was lead us to a solution that we did agree on. And one piece of that was that we both think there is a major problem in most health insurance being delivered by employers right now, and being able to narrow in on all. Here are all my individual concerns. Took us to this place of, oh, here is a federal policy that we could both get behind, eliminating requirements and subsidies for employers. Now, that's not a complete solution you know we're not charged with solving healthcare in the united states here in this one right. conversation right it just opened some doors and the most important thing is it made it where we both wanted to continue that discussion i think that's what we're all missing in our lives that sort of invitation to keep the conversation going because it was fun and we learned something and we got clear on our own values and we felt connected to the other person even when we disagreed
0: such great points and I think that takes us back to, you know, the point that was already made around nuance, which is so important. And the point that Sarah made early on about seeing the gray area and that when it comes to politics, we tend to make things really black and white. And like the immediate thing that comes to mind is that, you know, someone who's pro-life, assuming that someone who's pro-choice is also like in favor of murder and <laughs> because that's what it is, if that's what you would approve of, if you approve of abortion. And I think that when you take things back to these shared concerns and shared values, it's, you get such different elements of the conversation and you're not working in those extreme viewpoints. And those extreme viewpoints don't really like, I'm just thinking out loud as I'm saying this, but they don't serve a purpose. They just keep us really far apart from each other.
1: Yeah. I think the purpose that they serve is to give people things to run on in elections.
0: filters and they're specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS I swear it's like, can receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code SHAMELESS at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com and use the code SHAMELESS. S-H-A-M-E-L-E-S-S. AquaTrue.com code SHAMELESS. No one told us the
1: truth about parenthood. Why?
0: easy to assume that if someone is right-leaning and associates themselves with the Republican Party, that they believe in like A, B, C, D, and E. And like we just, you know, and especially a left-leaning person is just going to assume that if you have ever been a Republican ever in your life or ever voted that way, like, I'm just going to check all these boxes for you. And then the right person on the right is going to assume if you have been Democratic, voted Democratic, ever associated yourself with the Democratic Party, like, I'm going to check all these boxes for you and assume that these are all your beliefs. And so can you both talk about some perspectives that maybe, and especially as your relationship has grown together, where you have perspective has shifted or maybe like something that you maybe used to feel really black and white on has maybe become more gray to you?
2: Yeah, I definitely can. One of the things we do on the show are called, well, we used to do standalone episodes called primers, and now we sort of shifted our formula a little bit where we will spend a Friday episode on the basic things you need to know about a topic, and then we'll talk about it in more depth on Tuesday. Because we find when we can go back to basics and try to strip away the debate and just talk about the history and the background of an issue, that can be really, really helpful. So early in the show, we did one on welfare, And I just didn't understand a lot of the history of welfare. So often in the country, we still talk about it as if it is a federal government that hands out cash benefits, and that's just not the case. The federal government gives money to states, and then every state hands those benefits out differently. Sometimes it's cash benefits, sometimes it's not. And realizing that, realizing that the history of the program really did discourage people from working, hearing from listeners who said, you know, you have a privileged perspective because you haven't interacted with people within the system you haven't been within the system and so hearing that perspective really helped me and so I did I went from a very reflexive defensive position whenever welfare was brought up to understanding that it is not a perfect system and that there are flaws and room for improvement within the system and that helped me have conversations about that topic in a way I never could have before. Mm. Beth what about you?
1: I'll stick with that topic because I think it was a really eye-opening time of research for me too, especially learning that most of the Republican gripes about welfare systems have been addressed through various attempts at reform, and the data just shows that they aren't very effective. And so particularly imposing work requirements, there's just a lot of research that shows, look, it's not that people don't want to be working, it's that they don't have the foundation that allows them to sustain work in a job that actually pays their bills and helps them improve their standard of living. And so, you know, our state of Kentucky is trying to impose work requirements around Medicaid benefits. And I'm able to look at that now through the lens of understanding what happened with the Clinton welfare reform efforts and how those working requirements really exacerbated the problem instead of helping solve it. And I think it was just good to kind of get into the data and challenge my own perspective and ask myself, like, why am I repeating something that doesn't make any sense? And mm-hmm. I find that that happens often. Once we get into the details, <laughs> we're kind of stuck in an argument and the world has moved on, but we haven't moved on with it. And we haven't yeah. realized like, Hey, my solution has been tried. It failed. I need a new solution.
0: hmm That makes sense. How do you manage conversations when you disagree with each other and? Like, do you try to like always wrap it up at a bow at the end, or are there times that you walk away mad? Like, do you struggle with the emotional component of it, or are you able to all just stay even keeled and zen as you talk these things through? I'll let you go first, there, Sarah.
2: No, we don't. <laughs> no, okay. There's no. We're not trying to, you know, as Beth always says, we're not trying to come to draft legislation. That's not the goal right. of our show. Although we do often stumble upon solutions that make us both happy. We're really just trying to get curious and to explore these topics in a way that, like we said before, gives some breathing room to everyone. Mm -hmm. So we're definitely not trying to wrap everything neat in the bow because it's a democracy and that's not an option available to us. So maybe we should all let that go. (laughs) It's a democracy of 300 million people. Neat little bows are really not on the table for us. And the sooner we can all let go of that, the idea that if we can just elect this person or if we can just get in control of this body, then everything if we can just get rid of gerrymandering if we can just get more justices on the supreme court i mean the list of things people present as the solution that will fix it all are long but that shouldn't be the goal because we're going to be endlessly disappointed and we're going to become cynical which is a real detriment in a democracy and so i think the sooner we can relax into the idea that this is a long game and we're just trying to play our part in it the better off we'll all be i like that
1: I think the most emotionally difficult conversations that we've had have been about individuals instead of about policies or positions. Mm. So during the election, you know, Sarah worked for Hillary Clinton. She has a huge amount of affection for Hillary Clinton and I was not a Trump supporter, but I do have criticisms of Hillary Clinton and those conversations were incredibly hard for both of us. Like to the point where I was like, I don't want to talk about Hillary Clinton anymore, (laughs) which is difficult when you have a political podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to opt out on. Yes. But I mean, the lesson for me in that has been, that is part of why I think this president is so polarizing because I think that we are more and more, wrapping our political identities up in individuals instead of in ideas and we get more emotional when we talk about individuals that we identify with than when we're talking about ideas and so something really important to me right now is as much as possible i just try to take the president out of the equation and say like let's pretend someone else is president that none of us have ever heard of but that we all feel pretty good about how do we feel about this topic in those circumstances mm. because My emotions only get activated when we're in these spaces that are really just about individual people. And I find that that's as different as Sarah and I are. I find that that's true about her too and about a lot of our listeners.
0: That's interesting. And when you say about individual people, are you talking about like specifically about specific politicians then?
1: Yes. Okay. Yes. I mean, there's a reason that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez fires people up one way or another, right? Like right, individuals right. just become a lightning right. rod in a way that issues don't seem to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're totally right. So you've given some examples already, but can you just help listeners? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people like me who really struggle with family members with <laughs> differing points of views. And actually, and I'll speak for my situation. Like there's family members that I no longer have relationships with because their political views were so offensive and disrespectful. And it just got like so ugly that I was like, I need to like back away from this relationship. And so I know that's not probably like the most productive way to manage (laughs) relationships. And so can you talk about navigating difficult conversations and difficult issues with grace with family members?
2: I mean, I think that one of the best ways I've heard this articulated as just a an entry point is Krista Tibbett, who's the host of On Being and so brilliant, says if you're an oppressed person and you feel unsafe and you're being called to safety, that's fine. That should be your top priority. But if you are a privileged person, then this time calls on you and you don't feel that your safety is an issue, then this time calls on you to get uncomfortable. Mm. It's time to bump up against each other in a way, That's what I like to say, to rub our rough edges off. Nobody is perfect. Nobody is so evolved and so good that they can't benefit from difficult conversations with those that love them and who they love. And so our advice is always to prioritize that relationship. If you can prioritize that relationship with the grace of understanding that you get things wrong, and have benefited from luck and love in your life that you did not earn, and so has that other person, then moving forward from that space will be so much simpler. Not always easy, right. but simpler. And, I, you know, it breaks my heart when people say that, you know, I've stopped talking to people. My father, who is a Trump supporter, tried to do that with me at one point, was like, maybe we should just not talk about this anymore. And I'm like, no, that's, no. We love each other. If you're my father and I'm your daughter and we can't talk about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, then I'm worried about our democracy because it is built on the idea that we're all gonna come together from very different perspectives and try to move forward as a country. You know, I always tell people like, I understand how hard it is. I don't understand what other option is being presented to us because as far as I know, Louisiana is not going anywhere and neither is California. So (laughs) no matter how much this ideology or this approach upsets you or makes you uncomfortable, you're still in a nation with these people. And so acknowledging that, again, we're in a long game together and finding particularly spaces where you have a relationship outside politics that you can prioritize and use as your guiding light to talk about these really difficult issues we face as a country. I just listened to a really wonderful interview with Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, which is an incredibly diverse city. And he was saying, now these are people who don't have a relationship, but he was like, just instructing two different groups to bridge the cultural divide and listen to each other is not going to work. That's not a thing human beings are good at or we should even ask them to do. He's like, what bridges the divide is shared work, shared work we can do together. And we have a lot of work to do as Americans. We have a lot of work to do together. We have big issues confronting our nation that we need to start working on together if we want our children to live better lives than we have. And I hope even if we're talking about outside personal relationships, that we can unite in that shared destiny, unite in that shared work we have together as a nation. I love that. That was powerful. Thank you. I
0: know I really appreciated that. And I know there's other listeners who are in similar family situations to me who will really appreciate the impact of that statement. Beth, can you talk about why it's really particularly important for moms to be politically engaged and or involved?
1: (laughs) Well, I think for so many reasons, but one is that there's just research that shows that women are really good at working on hard stuff. Mm -hmm. There's research that in war-torn countries, when women are brought to the table, they are the peacemakers. They are the people who can figure out how to resolve that conflict. I also think that we've just been, and I can't remember who uses this metaphor. I want to attribute it properly, but I heard it on Oprah Super Soul Conversations, but she said, we've been fighting with one hand behind our back. It's like we have, we have a a sister. It was a sister. I can't remember her name right now, but she said, you know, we have these two different perspectives represented in men and women, and we've only brought one hand to all of our problems for so long. Mm. And I think that women, especially moms, just kind of connect to those problems a little bit differently. There's something about taking this view of what do I want for my children? And what do I know as someone who has been a caretaker to some extent in this really universal way? How am I going to filter these issues a little bit differently? And I think that just makes more room for greater perspective, greater willingness to hear other people out a greater sense of when we don't compromise. You know, I think something that moms are really good at is knowing which hill to die on. And Mm -hmm. we need more of that in our government too, because everything right now is so transactional. And I think moms are the people who can break through that transactional nature and start to say, wait a second, let's raise ourselves as a country. Who do we want to be here?
0: Yeah. So from there, I would love to hear each of you share in what ways you are a shameless mom. Do you want to start, Sarah?
2: Help me. I read your question and I was like, I'm not sure what that means.
0: That's so funny because a number of people ask, they're like, well, which way should I take that? I'm like, take it whatever way you want. So how do you show up shamelessly as a mom? So it can be like, you like to take baths by yourself at night after you put the kids to bed, or it can be like you're raging conscientious, politically engaged kids, like whatever <sighs> direction you want to take it.
2: <laughs> oh, I love that. Okay. Where do I show up as a shameless mom? Well, I grew up with a mother who was very unapologetic in her role as my mother, if that makes sense. I had a very vivid memory of crying in middle school and being like, Jenny and Jackie haunt, this was a mother and daughter, our best friends. And my mother saying, I've got lots of friends. I don't need any more friends. I'm your mom. And so I had a mother who just was very shameless and, like sort of standing in her power as my mother and saying, no, I'm helping you figure out what's right for wrong. And I'm sorry, you're mad at me or this makes you not like me, but I don't really care. And so that's, I have no problem with my kids being mad at me or being upset with me. My son at one point was like, this is why I took a jump rope away from a child at church. And he said, this is why my friends don't like you. And I was like, (laughs) I don't care. I possibly care less if your friends liked me. So I'm sort of a shameless, like, I will fight whatever, you know, and it really came out in natural birth. There was this like, the second somebody's like, oh, you'll see, you'll do this. I'm like, oh, now watch me. You know, like, right. you'll see, you'll cave. It's, it's so hard. It hurts so bad. You'll be calling for the pain meds. And I was like, oh, really? Okay. I feel when I talk about like, I don't want to give my child a cell phone. We've signed the wait till eight. We're not going to do cell phone till high school. And they'll be like, oh, you'll see. You'll cave. You'll want it. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to put that in my bank. I'm going to show you one day. Um, (laughs) Hashtag watch me. I have a lot of that in me too. like instinctual and gut driven. So when my gut's like, this is the right thing to do for my kid, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter who comes up against me, including my own child. Like I'm just not going to budge. Interesting. I love it. So great. Beth, what about you?
1: I think my shamelessness as a mom really revolves around my sense that I don't need to be everything for my kids. Mm. And so I never had any mom guilt about working full time and having caregivers in our lives. I don't feel like I need to be the answer to every problem. I'm very comfortable. Just this morning, my eight-year-old was telling me about her feelings being hurt because some girls at school were mean to her. And we were having a conversation about what they said and how she was feeling. And I said, why don't you talk to your guidance counselor at school about this and see what her advice is? And I told her, you know, I have a guidance counselor in my life. Basically, his name is Kurt and I pay him a lot of money every couple of weeks to help me solve problems. And I just was thinking about how radically different that approach is from the way lots of people parent, because I think mothers feel so much pressure to be everything for their children. Mm -hmm. And I feel like my better contribution to them is saying, I'm a really important person in your life, but you need lots of really important people in your life and you need lots of people and lots of different perspectives. And so maybe the best lesson I can give you today about girls being mean to you at school is there are helpers for that. Go use those helpers and don't feel bad about it, you know?
0: Oh, so good. I love it. Okay. I want you to tell us about the book, where we can find it, where we can connect with you, all of those things. So who wants to brag about the book? (laughs)
1: I feel like that's more your gift, Sarah. Do you want to do it? Take it away, Sarah. Brag all you want.
2: <laughs> we wrote this really, truly phenomenal book called, I think you're wrong, but I'm listening A Guide to Graceville a Political Conversation. The best compliment we've gotten about the book is the audiobook Tex, who helped us record the audiobook. You can get, listen to us read the book if you'd like Ooh. to. On Audible was a listener favorite last month because of its high rating. Just saying. I love um, it. They said, you know, we listen to a lot of these, and nonfiction books are so often repetitive, but your book is really meaty. We feel like everything you say is not a repeat. It's all very important and unique and new. And I felt like that was a real, as somebody who reads a lot of nonfiction, I was like, I know exactly what you're talking about. And that was a high compliment. Super high compliment. Yeah. So it's been out in the world. It's really cool. A listener has launched a, if you give a rep a book initiative. So you can actually go on our website and sign up to send the book to your representative. There's like a sheet so everybody can track which representatives have already gotten the book. They, we sent it to like 40% of the Senate already. It's pretty amazing. That is so cool. Yeah, it's, we'll send you the links. and you Yeah, can send
0: me it. the link and I'll link to all of that in the show notes. And then, so I want people to go get the book. And if especially if any of you felt like any piece of this conversation you were like, I need a little bit more of this. Like, I just know there's so many things that both of you mentioned that were eye openers for me and definitely made me rethink some things that I had been a little stuck in. So I
2: would encourage anyone. It's to all help. in the book. It's all in the book. Yes. Yes. I love it. And then and like people- I said, there's also thousands of hours of our conversation. So you can get the book yes. wherever you get books and yep. you can to our podcast, Pantsuit Politics and The Nuance Life, wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on social media at Pantsuit Politics on Twitter, at Pantsuit Politics on Facebook and Instagram. And on Instagram, I do a morning news brief in our Insta stories. So if you want a quick rundown of the news and the headlines in a very not professional way, then I'm your girl. And then Beth on our Patreon page does this really cool thing called Nightly Nuance, where she'll take a story and do a deep dive and sort of put on her in the weeds teacher hat, which she's very good at, and we'll explain it in more detail. So that's for our patrons. If anybody's interested in checking that out.
0: Amazing. Oh my gosh. I love it. So I will link all that up in the show notes. I want to thank you both for being here. This was fun and very enlightening and it gave me a lot more hope than I thought it was. Not that I didn't think it would give me hope, but I just, it opened my eyes to a lot of things. So I really appreciate you being here.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you so much, Sarah.